Well, I believe it was Winston Churchill who said something like this. He said that he who fails to plan, anybody know this one? (laughs) Planning to fail, right? It's become kind of a proverb. I've heard professors say it. Apparently goes back to the days of Ben Franklin. But he who fails to plan, plans to fail, or is planning to fail. And, and, and I think most of us in this room would say, yeah, that's, that's true. If you don't have a plan, then you're going to fail. Um, if you don't have a strategy for getting from point A to point B, even if it's coming to church or dinner at night, then pr- chances are you're not going to get here or you're not going to eat supper. Uh, no matter how haphazard or ad hoc a plan may be, there has to be a plan for you to succeed in things. And some of you guys have been planning for Mother's Day. And there might be a couple in here who failed to plan and are planning to fail as a result. And you're thinking, I probably should get up right now and go buy some roses. Well, listen, um, do it after service. Uh, but you know, there's a, that's, it's true. It, it is true. Uh, it, the person who really fails to plan plans to fail. It's, that's true. But there's another truth, too, that seems to go contrary to that, and it was popularized by a rock book group back in the 80s, the rock group Sticks. Anybody remember them? I know I'm dating myself, right? I had their album, right? Vinyl, you did too? And there's a song on there titled, Nothing Ever Goes As Planned. That was the mantra of my high school days, right? Nothing ever goes as planned. Well, first of all, the title's not entirely true. Sometimes things do according, go according to plan, but... In my experience, and probably yours, sometimes the best plans just go completely sideways over, over stupid little things, right? You could have the perfect restaurant reservations for mom, the best, most beautiful array of flowers you could ever find, perfect present, perfect gathering of people to celebrate that special person in your life, and then it all comes apart because of a flat tire or somebody gets the 24-hour flu. That's it, right? That nothing ever goes as planned. I found that to be true, too. It's because, you know, we, we're, we, we really are not in control of all the circumstances of life. Things can happen all the time. They just disrupt everything. Everything we plan is contingent upon other things, which means, yes, we got a plan, but those plans are always contingent. Which is why the Proverbs in the Bible say that a man's heart makes plans, but the Lord establishes his steps. Right? We make our plans, but ultimately it's the plan of the Lord that takes place. And sometimes those are at odds with each other. Uh, our plans and the expectations that we associate with those plans are at odds with what the Lord's going to do in our life. And sometimes when those things happen, that is, there's a variance, there's a dissonance, there's an, you know, a contradiction between what we envision and what the Lord has for us, it can derail us spiritually. It can send us into a kind of a spiritual tailspin, into a place of disillusionment and, um, and confusion. It's like, you know, I, I, all of us have this little crystal ball in our head. Remember the crystal ball? And you can look into and, and you see what you hope for and dream for the future. And everyone has this crystal ball in their head. You have an idea about what you hope for in life. Some of you are old enough to realize that what you dreamed about early on never came to fruition and still hasn't come to fruition. And maybe you are disappointed and disillusioned because you have this dream, you have this plan about what you want to see happen in your life. And the question is, like, how, how, how do we as Christians live in a world where our plans 
and our expectations associated with those plans aren't fulfilled. Well, I think, I believe that Exodus chapter 4, the end, and chapter 5 is actually a corrective to that, right? A corrective to that. If you've been with us, we've gotten to the point where God has said, Moses, you're going down to Egypt. Most of you know the story. Uh, to deliver my people out of slavery. At first, Moses resists and says, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I can't speak. And finally, the Lord um, overcomes all obstacles and sends him down to Egypt. And that's where we pick up on the story. And at the end of uh, chapter 4 and chapter five, into chapter 5, we have a, a sequence of meetings. It's like meetings. There's like seven meetings, right? And in these meetings, we go from positive and wonderful and joyful and celebratory all the way down to disillusioned, angry, and frustrated. That's where it ends. Starts high, ends low, right? Through this series of meetings. Most of it I'm going to summarize for sake of time. Meeting number one. I'm going to bring application of this at the end of this talk. Um, meeting number one, Moses goes to uh, meets, meets his brother, older brother Aaron. This meeting number one, and Moses says, hey, this is what the Lord told me in the burning bush, and this is what he said he was going to do, and these are the miracles we're supposed to do to deliver God's people. It's meeting number one. Meeting number two, Moses and Aaron go down to Egypt, and they gather together all the heads of the Jewish families called elders. And they tell them the same thing. This is what the Lord said. Yahweh has met with us. And these are the miracles that God is going to do uh, to liberate you from slavery. And the initial response in this meeting number two with the leaders of the Jewish people is, euphoric is probably too strong of a word, but it is at very least celebratory. Because it says, this is verse 31, the very end of chapter 4, and the people believed. Good news, God's arrived. Like the time of slavery has finally come to an end. And when they heard that the Lord, and just as a reminder, whenever you have capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D, that's your translation's way of saying that's the sacred name of Yahweh. So, heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. There is no worship without joy. That is, the time has finally come. This is a woohoo moment. This is yay team, like... If you were in slavery and you heard that God had come to deliver you, you would be ecstatic. So that's where we are in meeting number two. Which then leads to the big meeting between the shepherd prophet Moses, who's nearly 80 years old, and almighty emperor Pharaoh. That is Moses, probably rickety Moses, Meeting the most powerful man of the day. Meeting number two. And the first words out of shepherd Moses' mouth are a divine command. There's no please. There's no may we leave. It's a divine command. He says, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Like I said, this isn't a suggestion. This isn't a request. This, I, I don't know why I think of an 80-year-old man in a walker, but that's what I'm thinking of. Sorry, if you happen to be 80 years of age, I know my dad's 80 and he doesn't use a walker. But I just picture him just saying, let my people go. That's what Yahweh says. My people. 
They're God's people. He not only owns them, but they're precious to him, as we just read in 1 Peter. They're a treasure. Let my people go. And notice it says, thus says Yahweh. To which Pharaoh responds with the most crucial, the most important question in the entire book of Exodus, and arguably the most important question in all of the Bible. Because he responds to Moses' demand, the demand of Yahweh, with these words, who is the Lord? Like, who is the I am? Who is Yahweh? Right? I don't know who he is. That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. There has to be a pompous sense of smug arrogance in that statement. Who is this Yahweh? I'm Keep in mind that people believe Pharaoh was a god. He himself believed he was a divinity of sorts. I'm not going to let your people go. I don't know this Yahweh. As I said, it's the most important question of the book. Because the stories that follow, God's going to answer that question. Who is Yahweh? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you loud, clear, and it's going to terrify you by the time I'm done. But isn't the Bible about that question? Who is God? Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? The whole of the Bible answers that question. Who is he? And the final and fullest and most complete expression of who Yahweh is, of course, is the word made flesh in Jesus, right? This is who I am. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's meeting number two. doesn't go well. Um, but it is the question, and I'm going to come back to that at the end. Who is Yahweh? He's going to find out the answer the hard way, the terrifying way. Which leads to meeting number four. Not only does Pharaoh say no, he makes things hard. And most of you know the story. His, he meets with his taskmasters, that is the people in charge of suppressing the people of Israel and keeping them in bondage. And he says, take away their straw. He made, needed straw to make bricks for his cities. Take away their straw and make, it get them, make them get the straw themselves, but don't let productivity fall short. So double the work, same productivity. So now the, the intensity of the slavery is getting worse. See, we started with worship, and now it's at a place of intensified slavery to the point where it, it, it's just a physical impossibility for the Jewish people to gather the straw and keep up the productivity of, of, of bricks and so their foremen, their, their, the Jewish foremen, are beaten as a result. That, that, that's, that, that's meeting number four. And, and, and the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all, 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 all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? So things are getting worse. More, the, the slavery is more intense. And now there's torture and beatings, which leads to... Uh, meeting number five, the foremen, these Jewish foremen feel like it's unfair. They get an audience with Pharaoh and they come to Pharaoh and they say, listen, this is unfair. Why, 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 why is this happening to us? We're doing our work. To which Pharaoh uh, drops the hammer 
and lets them know this wasn't the taskmaster's idea. This is my idea. No straw will be given to you, but you must. You must deliver the same number of bricks. Twice the work, same productivity. And these foremen, Jewish foremen, who've just probably a bit bloody and beaten up, um, in a place that's impossible, backed into a corner, they set up another meeting with Moses. This is meeting number six. And in that meeting with Moses, the one who came with the good news, right? Hey, God's here. Yay. <laughs> now, now they blame him. They blame him. It's like the Lord, Yahweh, look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and the servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now they're blaming the prophet, right? It's meeting number six. whole string of meetings just going downhill. And it ends with meeting number seven in which it's like maybe going up the chain of command, which Moses turns to the Lord in a prayer and insinuates that the Lord is doing evil. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why, why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and, uh, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is frustration. This is anger. This is accusal of the Lord. It's, we went from worship to whining. We went from joy to anger, frustration, and casting blame on the Lord from the end of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 5. Is it, let me just ask you a question that relates to or, or, or solicits your own experience, I guess. Isn't that kind of like fallen human nature? That when things are good, then worship's easy. You know, when there's a tri-tip on the grill and mom's happy and the kids are doing well. Money in the bank. You and your wife are getting along. Job's fun. It's, it's, easy, it's easy to worship. Then all of a sudden, everything takes a landslide, and whatever dream you had, whatever you had in the crystal ball, is smashed, because what, whatever they thought God was going to do, this was not it. Just crystal ball crushed. Deliverance, this is getting worse, not better. Isn't it like fallen human nature, including believers like Moses? Completely derailed. The man who met with God, like got to hear him audibly through a burning bush, is now the one saying, you've done evil. I, I don't know what else to call it. That's being derailed. That's, that's coming off the rails of faith, of believing God is good or he's righteous. <laughs> Again, isn't the Bible, it paints a very vivid, flawed picture of its men except Jesus, right? So, I'm not going to end this on a negative note, by the way. Um, what are we supposed to do with this slide? Why, like, why is this chapter here? You could have just gone to they worshipped, and then the plagues, and then deliverance. Why, why take the time to talk about this downhill slide where it ends with people blaming Moses and Moses blaming God? 
I'd like to suggest two reasons um, that I think apply to us today. The first one really picks up on a pattern of Scripture found throughout. And that is, whenever God moves redemptively, and in one sense, God is always moving redemptively, but in another sense, God chooses to act definitively at certain times, like Egypt or like the cross, that at each of those points, there is always intense opposition. Or to put it differently, in um, more of a personal, individual framework, whenever you hear the voice of the Lord saying to you to do something, that is the voice of God, the voice of Christ saying, follow me, trust my word, act on my word, move forward, take the steps of faith and obedience and submit to me. Whenever we do that, we have to expect opposition. And that is the application. You have to accept or expect that when you're walking hand in hand with the Lord in faith that works itself out in obedience, you will You will be opposed, sometimes by people who call themselves believers. I said this was a pattern of scripture, right? Here, Moses comes down. Here, it gets gets worse. Not better at first. It gets worse. King David, you know, the deliverer of God's people. God anoints him in the next, I don't know how many years, 10, 15 years are horrible. He's opposed by his family. He's, he's opposed by King Saul. He's, he's chased around the country. He's living on breadcrumbs. It's like, who signed up for this? He's anointed king. I had a different vision of what king looked like. And now I'm running around like a peasant. Or Jesus. From the moment he arrived on our soil, people tried to kill him. Through the duration of his life, he was slandered and he was misunderstood, even by his own family. To the point where he's, you know, before it ever gets better, he's hanging on a cross. Wow. This moment of great redemption there is this fierce, intense, spiritual and physical and political opposition to him. That's, that's, that's the pattern in, in the scripture. And, it, and it, it should be a pattern that should make us aware of the fact, listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, and I don't mean come to church once a week and say that you believe in Jesus. There's a whole millions of people that do that. What I'm talking about to all of us, including myself, is someone who actually, by faith and with courage, is willing to stand firm and follow Jesus. So that sounds like a contradiction, but much of Christianity is just saying, this is what he says, I believe it, this is where I stand, and, and, and endeavoring to follow him. You can darn well expect that there's going to be opposition to you.
if you are following Christ. If there is no opposition, then you're probably one of those millions of people who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I attend church, but I, 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 I don't really live it out. I'm just saying, it doesn't make a difference whether you're a teacher in a public school or you work for the federal government or, um, or you're a businessman. There are times in which you know your allegiance and loyalty to Christ, your obedience that comes from your trust in him is going to put you at odds with people. And you got to be okay with that. You got to expect that. I mean, isn't that what Jesus taught us? He says, listen, uh, a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If, you know, but on the other side of it, it's like on the other side of it, God delivers and God does things and light appears and life appears and people get saved because people are expecting opposition, right? I mean, that's the Christian life. You put yourself um, in, the, in the draft of Jesus and you're following him, you can expect that spiritual forces of darkness are going to align themselves against you. Are you ready for that? Your crystal ball that you have in your head about to what your life looks like, it has to include this idea, if I'm a follower of Christ, I may even lose my life. If that's not in there, then it's well, probably means you're worshiping something here other than Christ. That there's something more important than having the dream or the American dream of the white picket fence and three kids and so forth. It's, it's, that's what you're living for. So that's, that's one big takeaway. Sometimes, listen, church, things get worse before it gets better. God's redeeming work is often messy and painful. It, it includes suffering of his people. That's been true from the very beginning. But there's an upside and a positive side to this. Because we might ask the question, why? Like, so the Lord could have delivered in that moment, but instead he has his people, including Moses, go through all of this. Why? And I think it gets down to, if you will, the ultimate, deepest purposes of God in history. And I, it really, it's one purpose in two parts. And that God, and you can use different verbs here, allows, permits, some would say decrees, evil to flourish for a time for the sake of the greater purpose of magnifying his glory. Let me say that again. Or it up there behind me. That evil serves the greater purpose of God's glory in our deliverance. That's, he has a deeper purpose, right? Or follow me here, okay? Moses comes in and says, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is this Yahweh? I'm not going to let him go. And you can, you can picture his, like, if God's people was a body, you can picture Pharaoh, like, squeezing the neck. It's like, I'm not letting him go. It's as if his resolve and determination not to let the people go has been intensified. The evil of his own heart has taken over, and he is not going to let God's people go. And I just picture God looking at him going, give it your best shot, big guy. 
Or, in the words of Clint Eastwood, go ahead, make my day. Because all of your resolve and your determination and all of your power, after all this, I am going to snap it like a twig. He says it over and over again, the stories that follow. I'm going to display my power over this God king. I am going to snap you like a twig. And all of this evil oppression you're doing is just going to serve the greater purpose of showing you and the rest of the world and all the nations just how powerful I am. In the deliverance of the people that I love, power, glory, and love. All in one place. And it's, this isn't the only place, right? I mean, you can picture all of, the, all of the powers moving in and conspiring against the Prince of Glory, the Son of God himself, thinking we have him, we pressed him into a corner, everybody's abandoned him, even his followers have denied and betrayed him, and watching him suffer on a tree and then take his last breath, the powers of darkness must have thought, this is it. Again, I picture God, Yahweh, going, give it your best shot. Or in the words of Clint Eastwood, go ahead, make my day. Because three days later, God broke, snapped like a twig, the power that the devil had over us by way of sin and death. Never to rule over his people again. See, it got dark, but God showed his power over the darkness in the midst of suffering and evil. Or, we're told at the end of time, depending on how you interpret the book of Revelation, I think it's kind of a now and not yet book. Some of it's happening, and yet there's still a lot that's not happened yet. Where we're told that authority was given to the dragon and the beast those were images of hostility to God's people. Authority was given to them to wage war against God's people and to kill them. Speaks of a time in which evil will once again squeeze the neck of God's people. It will prevail. Blood will be spilled. Believers like you and I will be forced to make a choice. And it will seem in that moment like God's not around. Well, if that's in our day, I hope you'll remember, yeah, it happened in Moses' day, too. And it happened in Jesus' day, too. And what's coming next? The end of the book of Revelation? God snaps the powers of this world like a twig with the breath of his mouth. To declare once for all, this is the power, the supreme power of my justice and my love for my people. So listen, I know evil is a hard thing, pain is a hard thing, suffering is a hard thing, but it serves a deeper purpose of God showing his power over it, even if it's not in your lifetime. And that is part of the point that we're going to get. Who is the Lord? He is so strong and he's so mighty and so wise that he can turn evil against itself. That church is awesome and 
What he's seeking to do in, in doing this is what, 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 he's bringing his people, Israel, to himself. I want them to come to me. That's the end all. Is, is our journey doesn't end with a casket in the ground. Our journey ends with the presence of God, and that's what we live for, and that is what he is about. So that Paul could say, and I, I, I close with this, is Paul could be able to say, even though he, was in a, he struggled with his own suffering, he could say, listen, I don't consider the sufferings of this life to be even comparable to the glories to come. So listen, sometimes things get a lot worse, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And God has taken us there. Expect opposition in your workplace. Expect opposition sometimes in your own family. Expect opposition in our California liberal culture. But you keep your eyes on the prize, and you know you have a sovereign king who overcomes evil with his power and his love. And someday, you and I, We'll see with Paul that the glories to come far exceed anything we're going to suffer now. Amen? Amen. Lord, I I, I pray that you make these words more than just words. um, Make them a living reality in our soul, in our hearts, as a people. We don't know where you're taking us. Um, We don't know what's around the corner in our culture, in our society, that is increasingly hostile to the Bible to Christ, to the claims of Christ, to biblical morality. Um, And I I just ask that you grant us the faith to stand strong, humbly, but courageously, to know who we follow, to expect it to get worse before it gets better, but all the while to keep our eyes on the sovereign king who will, in a moment, snap like a twig evil power. And we pray this in the name of our Jesus. Amen.